0: Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And you're probably saying, what is he doing? Is he starting us over again in the book of Acts? Rest assured, I am not. Uh, We have pilgrimaged through this book for the last three years, almost to the week. So it's time for us to uh, come to our final meditation upon this uh, uh, marvelous a book included in Holy Scripture. Certainly one of the reasons to study the book of Acts is that it is the nursery for the birth and the early growth of the New Covenant Church. But the book of Acts also takes us behind the scenes and shows us some of the challenges and ferocious, even deadly opposition that face the church In its early infancy. This is really the only history book of the early church found in scripture. And if you try to summarize what the book of Acts is all about. You can say Acts is all about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Holy Spirit. To build his church. And that really kind of summarizes the entire message and the content of the book of acts certain apostles are highlighted in this work of the of Christ through the holy spirit namely peter and paul there are others certainly but it's primarily the work of Christ through the spirit to build his church with that in mind in acts chapter 1 what i'd like to do today is just to highlight some things that i think are important from the book of acts Kind of as a way to to summarize the book and to close the the door on this uh, particular study, so if you look at Acts chapter one, verse eight, you really come to the theme of the entire uh, book in Acts chapter one, verse eight, The risen Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you' And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And the rest of the book is really an outworking of this ministry of Christ through the Holy Spirit. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be witnesses for Christ. And you can see it just working through the entire book. For example, in Jerusalem, Christ is proclaimed. In Chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 8 through 12, the gospel now goes to all Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 through the end of the book, it's the remotest parts of the earth. The gospel. The people are going out to be witnesses for Jesus Christ through the remotest parts of the world, everywhere, carrying the gospel of life to those who are in their sin and darkness. So this is really the Great Commission of the book of Acts. And when you think about what's important, uh, you see that uh, the Great Commission is up front and center when it comes to the book of Acts. So these are things that we need to recognize that we, we should emphasize. This should is, This is what our church should be about. The Great Commission is not just something for some people, it's really the main task that Christ gives to the church. To preach the Gospel, and as the Lord saves sinners, to bring them into churches, begin to train them, equip them, disciple them, so that they can continue the work of living for Christ and sharing the Gospel to others. That is our great commission. As you see how this work begins to unfold, One of the next uh, major events, of course, is Pentecost in chapter 2. This is where Christ, now in heaven, as He promised, He and the Father would send the gift of the Holy Spirit, promised to Israel in the Old Testament. And so we find that the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is the power to be Witnesses. The power to preach. The power to boldly go forth and take the gospel throughout the world. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Christ sending the Spirit to continue His work by the power of the Spirit. The reason why you and I are so fearful at times in sharing our faith and we struggle with it is we need more of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that gives us the boldness and the courage and the wisdom to proclaim Christ and be witness for Him. Uh, We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to walk by the Spirit. And so we need to continue to pray for that because our flesh is weak. Uh, The Lord is strong, but the flesh is weak. So we need to be praying for that. But this, I do want to comment on the gift of tongues that was so important in the book of Acts that it was clearly the ability to speak a known human language. Notice that when they were, began speaking in tongues, they were speaking to men who were gathered there from lots of different nations with different uh, native tongues, languages, and they were coming to Jerusalem to worship. But they were hearing the, the apostles speak in their own language. It wasn't a gibberish. It wasn't a mumbling. it was a known language. And whenever you begin to think about the gift of tongues, you must understand that biblically, and I think I'm convinced that Corinthians, which also deals at length with the gift of tongues, is the same type of gift. But it's the ability to speak in a known human language which pretty much rules out the practice of the gift today. But it's a very important part. It was a miracle. They would come up and there would be Jews there in Jerusalem, and they would speak in their native language, and they could understand what they were saying. So it's a very powerful witness to what Christ was doing in authenticating his apostles to preach the gospel to those who were still lost. Um, Christ is obviously on the throne of David at this time, later on, chapter two, verse 30 and thirty one. He's seated, he was resurrected, ascended after his 40 days of appearing to his disciples. And now he's seated at the Father's right hand at, on, the, on the throne of David. So that throughout the whole book you see Christ empowering his disciples to go forth and to do evangelism. To preach the gospel to those who need to hear it because that's how God saves sinners And so evangelism is up front and center throughout the entire book. In Acts 2.21, what they proclaimed is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's a gospel invitation to everyone. Peter says, Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they must call, they must believe, they must repent To receive the forgiveness of their sins. That is required. And again, all of this is is proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. Um, There is no other. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So evangelism is proclaiming that there's only one way to God, one way to heaven, and that is through only one person, Jesus Christ. Not Mary, not Mohammed, not Moses, only through Jesus Christ. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so that's what they were proclaiming. So again, we find that uh, Christ is on the throne of David; he's kind of like the uh, the general commanding his sergeants and corporals and lower officers on on ground out in the field to carry out the gospel. But he's leading, he's commanding, he's empowering from his throne, from the throne of David. In Acts two, verse thirty. Uh, there was a promise made to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, and in chapter two, verse thirty-one, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, it was when Christ was resurrected and then ascended, he went. He's sitting now on the throne of David. Some believe that's a future. Pe- no, it's now. He's on the throne of David now. So, what is what's going on? Well, the Great Commission. Is you go out and you bear witness in the power of the Holy Spirit that there's only one salvation through one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. He bore the sins of sinners, He paid the penalty, He bore the wrath of God, the curse of God. So that ultimately he is elect would be saved, but we don't know who they are. So we proclaim that to everyone that Christ can save you if you repent and believe in him. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's the promise. So as they begin to proclaim Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord begins to save people and add to their numbers. And so what you do then is you organize them in local churches. And when we come to Acts 13, you see the importance of this in missionary activity. So in Acts 13, you find that uh, you're in the city of Antioch. There are a lot of prophets in the church back then. They were all ministering to the Lord, verse 2, and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, probably through one of the prophets, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them out. So the local church is sending out these missionaries, Barnabas and Saul, to preach the gospel and then to organize the believers that God saves into local churches. And in the local church, those believers are to be discipled, taught, trained. And this local church sent out its missionaries To preach the gospel engage in missionary activity. Church planting, if you will. That's really how you carry out the Great Commission. It's really more than just evangelism. Because remember what Christ said in Matthew 28. In the Great Commission, He says, Go and make what? Disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I have instructed you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. So you make disciples. That's really what the Great Commission is all about. It's not just evangelism. It's when people come to faith, then you help them grow and become disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. That's really what the Great Commission encompasses. And that involves church planting, so that the church and believers can grow and and learn to walk more faithfully with Jesus Christ. So when you look at the book of Acts, it's great commission. It's what's primarily uh, the driving force throughout the entire book. And we've seen that as we've worked through uh, the book chapter by chapter. But one of the things I want to emphasize is that Northwest Bible Church must continue to remind ourselves and engage in the Great Commission. That has not expired. There wasn't a termination date like on a jug of milk you get, you know. It expires on a certain date. The Great Commission doesn't expire. It's as much in, in force today as it was back then. So how are we engaged in the Great Commission? Well, we have. We're, Working towards, uh, Lord willing, sending out the Malones, a family in our own church. They want to go to Japan, so we're working on the finances. They, I think they need a little more help on that end, but they've been doing a lot of preparation to go to Japan and preach the gospel and be involved in, in establishing the church there and bring sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's a glorious opportunity that we have. As a church, we should rejoice in that and do what we can to further it and support them. Push them forward. But just in our daily lives, to be mindful that we are to pursue the power of the Spirit to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And we all have different gifts and different personalities and different abilities. And we always need the Lord's wisdom. But the Great Commission is still our task. So we need to pray that God would help us because it's not easy to share our faith at times. Uh, we We can become prey to the fear of men. But we need to pray for the power of the Lord to help us to be a godly witness before the world so that they might see Jesus Christ in us and at some point hear about Jesus Christ from us. So we need to pray for God's help that we can continue to be involved in the Great Commission to do our part in doing evangelism, supporting missions, being involved in church planting, whatever, uh, however the kingdom of God is, is spread. These are things that, that we certainly need to always be reminded of. I think the book of Acts would tell us to do that. It also reminds us that there can be a very great cost in being a follower of Jesus Christ. As we saw in the book of Acts, there was a lot of opposition. Those who were proclaiming the Gospel, sometimes they were beaten, sometimes they were thrown in jail, sometimes they were put to death. Um, Stephen was stoned to death. Paul, Saul who became Paul, was stoned not to death, but he was still stoned. You read 2 Corinthians 11 and you read this incredible list of bodily pain and persecution and, and, and torment that he had to endure in his gospel ministry. There is a price to pay. We, we must face that front and center. But it's for Christ. And whatever we suffer in this life, he promises to reward us in the life to come. There's also times when there must be civil disobedience. When the government forces us to do what is contrary to Scripture, then we must, respecting our government, obey God rather than man. So you find that within the book. It's just part of the the consequences of of representing Jesus Christ in a world that hates Him, in a world that would love to silence the gospel. And so we're living in a cancel culture now in many ways. And it's affecting the church. So we need to pray for that boldness and wisdom to know when and how and where and all these things to be a godly witness for Jesus Christ. Because the world is still in darkness. And they need to see the light of Christ. And only the Spirit of God can do that. But He uses us as the means of carrying that out. So all of this are are lessons and and challenges that I don't want us to quickly forget now that we're kind of wrapping up our study. Another thing in the book of Acts that the opposition to the preaching of the Gospel, uh, those who oppose us and persecute us and judge us ultimately will stand before God. And they will give an account for how they treated Christ's people on earth Um, God will bring judgment either now in this life or certainly on the day of judgment on those proud arrogant rulers that try to make themselves out to be God and to try to suppress and persecute the church remember King Herod King Herod was the one who executed the apostle James in Acts chapter 12 verse 2 And later on, when he was speaking to the people from Tyre, all puffed up with them calling him a god, and he certainly wasn't, and yet he did not give the glory to God. God struck him and he died with worms. Now, I don't know if I think of the ways I'm going to die. I don't know. Dying of worms is not the one I put at the top of the list. But God struck him. And it just it was it was not a good way to die. But God struck him, and those who are not judged in this life will one day stand before the Lord God Almighty. Will be the judge of the living and the dead. They will give an account. So we may not get justice in a human level in this life, but there ultimately will be justice to come. So the book of Acts reminds us of that. At times. Uh, Through the book. So that's the thing that I primarily want to emphasize. That uh, the focus on the book of Acts is on the Great Commission. And I would challenge you to think in terms of how am I participating in the Great Commission. Lots of different ways to do it. Praying, finances, our own individual witness. But just pray for God to use us in a more powerful way to be a witness for Jesus Christ, a faithful witness for Him. And I think that would be one of the great takeaways from the entire book of of Acts. The other thing, because I love theology, I I want to just try to trace uh, some theological themes through uh, the book of Acts as well. I've heard it say sometime, well, you don't get your theology from historical narrative literature. Well, that's not always the case. Whenever you find in historical literature, which the book of Acts is, uh, theological statements, you can certainly uh, get good theology from it and let it influence your your own theology. Uh, Obviously, a lot of historical narrative is just telling us what happened. But embedded within historical literature, you find these little nuggets, these gems, these pearls of these incredible theological truths that we need to to recognize and embrace. So let me just kind of walk through some of them with you. Obviously, there's the the doctrine of predestination that you find in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So this is Peter. Peter, the predestinarian. We always think of Paul. But Peter certainly believed in the doctrine of predestination. Notice what he says in this passage. He is saying that all the people that participated in the greatest sin, the greatest criminal act of all human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, all the people that participated in that, from Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, that would be the Roman soldiers that actually knelt Him to the cross, and the peoples of Israel, all the people shouting out, all the, the leaders wanting Him dead and crucified, yelling out, crucify Him, crucify Him. All that they did, whatever they did, was according to God's purpose predestined to occur. Now that raises a lot of theological questions. Did God predestine the crucifixion of Jesus Christ through the hands of evil men? Absolutely yes. That's what this is saying. Now they're still accountable for their choices, but in some way, and this is part of the secret things of God, how God works and controls and directs to accomplish a predetermined purpose that He predetermined, We just have to humbly submit that maybe I don't understand it, but He did it. God was in control. He could have stopped them. But it was His purpose from eternity past that His Son would be crucified. The only way He's going to be crucified is by sinful, evil, wicked men doing it. Because He's the sinless Son of God. So they did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur, So that speaks to something of God's authority and sovereignty over all people. The good and the wicked. And how He does it again, we can, I'm happy to say I don't understand it. But God predestines and uses evil to accomplish a greater good. Here's the lesson from this. Out of the greatest, most sinful, evil act of all human history came the greatest, most glorious good of all human history. That if God can predestine and utilize evil men to crucify His Son, the greatest, most abomination imaginable, that they took the Son of God down from heaven and nailed Him to a cross and put Him to death. If God predestined that evil and brought out of it the greatest good imaginable salvation for sinners, then cannot God use the evil that is touching your life and bring good out of it as well. This is the comfort I get from this uh, theology found in this passage. That God overrules evil. He directs it for His own purpose, His own will. He directs it in such a way to accomplish a good that is far greater than what we could imagine the evil would be. If He can do that on the greatest level, He can do it on a smaller level. So that when evil and afflictions and and these kinds of things touch your life, that bring great pain and hardship, yet God is able to bring good out of that evil for His glory. That's why in Romans 8.28, Paul writes that God works all things, all things, good things, bad things, together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. So we find that in all of this, we see an incredible witness to, to God's predestination. That it even encompasses evil things, but God uses it to accomplish His glory and good for His people. In chapter 17, it speaks of God determining their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. The day you were born, the day you were death is predetermined by God. Where you live, the boundaries of your habitation is determined by God. So you just thought you moved here to Oklahoma. Is God in His own mysterious way guiding you? directing you so that the boundaries of your habitation he appointed and your times as well. Well let's look at some other how about the doctrines of grace? You know you think the doctrines of grace, you know we find that in Romans and Ephesians, all these no you find it in the book of Acts as well. That that salvation is from the grace of God that we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. It is a free gift that God gives freely to sinners. And we see this reflected even in a historical book like the book of Acts. So for example, how about the five points of Calvinism? We don't worship Calvin. Don't fall I'm just it's a way to summarize what we believe is taught in the scriptures. But total depravity is not so much theologically defined in the book of Acts, but it is described. So you see how the Jewish people, for example, disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be given to them instead, Barabbas. Does that not speak of the darkness and the deadness of their own hearts? that they would disown the holy sinless son of god that came down from heaven who who did miracles who taught incredible truths who who showed his mercy and they disowned him and then later they were described as being stiff-necked and and uncircumcised in heart their hearts were dead and their ears were deaf and they are always resisting the holy spirit that speaks to their depravity again it's not defined as well as we find in other books, but certainly described here. Which means that the grace of God has to penetrate through that to save sinners. How about uh, the doctrine of election and the gift of faith? Well, it's interesting that when you read in, in Acts chapter 9 of the conversion of Saul, I don't think there's any greater historical description of election than that. I mean, Saul wasn't looking to become a Christian. He was on the war path to kill Christians or to at least arrest them, drag them back to Jerusalem, and hopefully do the death sentence on them. He wasn't looking, he wasn't seeking after God at all. But God initiated, came upon Saul with such incredible power, the blinding light. And then he spoke out of heaven, called him by name. So that the whole salvation event of Saul is an outworking of the doctrine of election. Remember, God told Ananias that He wanted him to meet up with, with Paul and put his hands on him and heal him of his blindness. But He said, He's a chosen vessel of mine. See, God chose him. And God saved him. It was God's work. Uh, Saul Again, Saul was a rebel. He hated Christ and then, how to explain this incredible, why doesn't God do that to everybody? Why doesn't God give that same experience to everybody? Obviously, He, doesn't, he chooses not to. But he did it with this man, and it shows the sovereignty of the move of God to save individuals. In Acts 13:48, Paul says, or Luke is writing it, but he says, "When the Gentiles heard this, heard the, the gospel, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So who were those who believed the gospel? Only those who had been appointed by God to eternal life. The elect. Chosen from before the foundation of the world. They're the ones who believe. Now back when I was in college, I was, so I was wrestling with these doctrines of grace, I remember picking up a living Bible, which was real popular back then. And the Living Bible flip-flopped this verse around. It said, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. The exact opposite. Obviously, their theology influenced their paraphrase. But that's not what it's saying. As many as been appointed to eternal life by God in the context, clearly, chosen, elected, appointed, they're the ones who believe. The others did not believe. Why? They were not Appointed to eternal life. That was the cause of their faith. Not the other way around. In Acts 16.14. The Lord opened her heart, Lydia. To respond to the things spoken by Paul. She did not respond in belief to the gospel. Until the Lord opened her heart. And that opening of the heart is similar language to. What we find in other places of Scripture called regeneration or the new birth where God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that's alive. So God opened her heart and then she was able to respond. That old dead heart is not going to respond. It's in rebellion against the Gospel. It's in rebellion against Christ Till so God in His grace moves upon selected individuals and opens their heart So they can come to faith in Christ. It's amazing. In in, in the book of Acts. We also see in 1827. They believed through grace. It was God's gift. It It was God's unmerited faith. That caused them ultimately to come to faith. It doesn't say they believed in grace. They believed through God's grace. The grace of God is what enabled them to come to faith in Christ repentance, which is the backside of saving faith, they both go together, you can't separate them, is clearly theologically stated in the book of Acts as being a gift of God. In five, chapter 5, verse 31, repentance is granted by God to Israel. In chapter 11, repentance is granted by God to the Gentiles. It's given as a gift, not to everybody, not to every Jew, not to every Gentile but to those who are appointed to eternal life. It's granted. In other words, it is given as a gift. That's what that word implies. In Acts 11.15, Peter says, As I began to speak, referring to um, speaking to Cornelius and the Gentile. This is the beginning of of the salvation of Gentiles with Cornelius. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that's Cornelius and his family who had believed. Just as he did upon us at the beginning. In other words, this is where this is another incredible theological statement about how the Gentiles are being grafted into the olive tree of covenant Israel. True Israel. So Peter is saying, man, we couldn't believe it. Because on the day of Pentecost, when we got the Holy Spirit and fulfillment of Joel a promise that God made to Israel in the covenant. Now we find that when we preach the Gospel of Cornelius, these Gentiles came to faith and the same gift that God promised to Israel in the Old Testament is poured out on them too in the same way that it was poured out on us at Pentecost. In other words, Gentiles are now being grafted in to the new covenant Israel of God. This is is great theology. You find Paul developing it in Romans, Ephesians, other places like that. But this is a very important message in the book of Acts that Gentiles are being included. They're being grafted in. And in fact, they're going to have a prominent place in the new covenant, Israel, the church. Jews, some of the Israelites will come to faith They'll, they'll be far outnumbered by the Gentiles. So Paul, as he gets opposition in the synagogue, says, okay, I'm turning away from you. I'm, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he was the apostle of the Gentiles, even though Peter was the first one to bring a Gentile to faith. If you, if you try to separate that out and rebuild the dividing wall between Israel and Gentile believers then you don't want to do that. That wall has already been broken down by Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. So that the new covenant Israel is not just a believing Jews, it's believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And that's why in Revelation, it says, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, referring to Christ, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So it's the world. We need to take the gospel to the world because those have been appointed to eternal life throughout the world, throughout all men, all kinds of men. So we're responsible and accountable still to repent and believe. And one of the things I want to just say in passing real quick is that there is no hyper-Calvinism in this. What do I mean by hyper-Calvinism? People who would say, well, if you believe in the doctrine of election, that God has chosen whom He's going to save, then we don't need to evangelize, we don't need to do missions. Because if God's already predetermined it, then I have no part to play. That would be hyper-Calvinism. Or God's already predestined what's going to happen in my life, so I don't have to worry about being obedient, or I don't have to worry about pursuing the means of grace. All of that is faulty, wrong thinking. The Bible does not support it. It does not teach it. It's very foolish to even come to that idea. Because it would be like saying, well, God's already predetermined the game of my team this evening, so why even suit up and go play? But that's not the way God lays it out. God not only determines the ends, He also determines the means to get there. So you can never use predestination or election or anything else to cause us to ignore all the other verses of the Bible that says things like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, can't work for it, but work out your salvation with fear. That's that's in the Bible too. You can't just say, well, I'm going to cherry pick these on the sovereignty of God and predestination so that relieves me of my responsibility. It does not. Bible said, Peter says, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Be diligent. So, Peter the predestinarian is also Peter the exhorter. Be diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. And that involves... Getting in the Word and, and being obedient to Christ and s- trying to live a life that pre- pleases Him. Be diligent. Don't, you, cannot, you cannot ignore it or rip the Bible in two and say I'm going to cling to the sovereignty verses and ignore the responsibility verses. We still need the grace of God to do our responsibility. But I don't know how God works through all of that in my life on any given day. But I know what He's told me to do. And I need to take what He's told me to do and take it to heart and strive diligently to to live in the light of it. Because the reason why that's important is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Among which the Holy, I'm sorry, uh, judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, either good or bad. So you're going to be held accountable before God for everything that you do. So you cannot take lightly the commands or the exhortations of Scripture. So we balance the two. Responsibility to and that comes from the Lord. But we're still held accountable. We still have to take these commands and these exhortations seriously and pray for more grace. If I'm struggling in that area, pray for more grace so I can be obedient and be faithful to Him. So no hyper-Calvinism. Well, real quickly, just how about limited atonement? Did Christ die for the church only or for everybody? Well, Acts 20, verse 28. Beyond Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Now, it's just one statement. Uh, there's lots more Scripture you have to factor in, but it says He purchased the church with His blood. So it's very similar to what we find in other verses. When Jesus said in John 10, verse 11, the good shepherd lays his, down, his life down for the sheep. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, i.e. the church. Matthew 1, 21. Mary will bear a son. You'll call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. So there's other verses you have to consider through this. But ultimately... Uh, Christ came to save His church, to bleed for His people. And those people, those chosen elect people are scattered throughout the world. So the verses that talk about Him, the Savior of the world, we believe that 100% as well. From every nation, tongue, and tribe, the elect are scattered. So He's a Savior for the world in, in a general sense. Well, how about irresistible grace? Well, real quickly... Acts 2:39 as many as the Lord God will call to himself when He calls them, they come, they believe. It takes that inner call of the Holy Spirit. The conversion of Saul is the same thing. Again, 16 verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond. There was an irresistible work of God that resulted in their faith and trust in Christ. About perseverance? again not not elaborately taught within this book but everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins if your if your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven so you're going to end up being saved in the end if you have true faith and you've been born again and that that faith is in Jesus Christ but you have forgiveness of your sins sounds like you're going to make it to the end acts 13:48 as many as were appointed to eternal life believe, so some are appointed to eternal life. They will persevere. They're going to be, they're going to end up in eternal life in heaven with the Lord. Well, even though Acts is not a heavy-duty theological book, there are certainly gems to be found there. And finally, just a. <clears throat> a word on the uh, faithfulness of God. That as you look at the book of Acts, you certainly see how God is faithful. And we've seen it chapter after chapter, the faithfulness of the Lord. He's faithful to empower His church to fulfill the great mission. Christ is faithful to build His church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, referring to his profession that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So throughout the book of Acts, they were preaching the gospel. There was opposition. There was persecution. But Christ was faithful to build His church. Something we probably should keep in mind. God is always faithful to His promises. And if He promises He's going to do something for you or for a church, He will do it. He is faithful. We may be unfaithful, but He is always faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And this is one of the things we see throughout the book of Acts, that Christ is faithful to build His church. Through opposition, through persecution, through boldness, through proclamation, through floggings, all of that. But he was faithful to build his church. And he always will be. And lastly, he will be faithful to his people. Always. He is always with you. He has promised that he is with you through thick and thin. Through good times and bad things. He is faithful to his promise. So I love Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And this is a promise to God's people that should comfort us to to motivate us to call upon the Lord, to draw near to the Lord because He is with us. And He has promised to help us and strengthen us and uphold us with His righteous right hand. He rescued His apostles from many afflictions and dangers throughout the book of Acts. Not all of them. They suffered their share. As Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But He protected them when it was according to His good purpose to protect them. He guided them when they needed special revelation on on when to go here or when to go there. He, He told them, don't go into Bithynia, the Holy Spirit told them. Now He guides us through the Word of God, the Spirit of God using the Word of God. But as we're in the Word, we can always trust His guidance. He will give power to us to be witnesses, and even though we're very fearful of that, He will empower us when we ask Him and desire that, which we should. And He's always faithful to save His people forever from our sins. And of course, that which is we see throughout the book of Acts, sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. They receive the forgiveness of their sins. They have the hope of glory. They are eternally secure. The grace of God will cause them to persevere to the end. And all of that blessing of salvation and sanctification and ultimately glorification was won for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's when He died in our place as our substitute and God put our sins upon Him and He suffered and bled and endured the wrath of God, the curse of God, and drank the full cup of God's wrath even down to His very last drop, down to the dregs of the hell that we deserve. He did it that He might save us and save us forever. And that is the joy that we should have in Christ. The joy of our salvation. I may not have joy in my other outward circumstances, but I can always have joy in the fact that Jesus Christ is my Savior and one day I'll be with Him forever and ever. And the reason why I can have that joy and that peace and that confidence is because Jesus died for us. So with that in mind, as we conclude, it's our joy and blessing and privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That all of God's faithfulness to us, all of His promises, all of the grace, all of the salvation that we will experience and continue to experience is because Christ died and won all of that for us by His sacrifice on the cross.